Welcome to the uh, latest Dishcast. Thanks so much for listening. We're getting more and more viewers and listeners, or listeners mainly. And that's really uh, encouraging. The whole thing has been extraordinarily encouraging. I'm here today with Shadi Hamid. Jesus, I don't even have your... Why don't you, why don't you give a, a, your quick, as I say in these... Um, in these like seminars, you give us your pronouns and then give us your, just a little bit of a of who you are <laughs> in case people don't know who you are. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having us, Andrew. Good to be with you. Um, I am uh, one of the two co-hosts of the Wisdom of Crowds podcast, along with my illustrious um, friend uh, Demir Marushik, who's also here, but he's um, he's being beamed in from Croatia, where he is now, so he can say something in a moment, but. Um, uh, I'm Shadi. Uh, I'm a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and I work quite a bit on the role of religion in, polit- in public life, uh, specifically Islam, but also more broadly. So I'm, you know, very interested in the questions of identity, culture, why we believe the things that we believe. And what we try to do um, on our podcast is um, try to drill down to the starting premises Um if we disagree, which I think you know most people disagree about some things, why? Why? What causes us to disagree? Uh huh. Damir, do you want to say something? You're sitting there in this rather elaborate ballroom in Croatia with a large chandelier and uh, in Zagreb. In Zagreb, yes, yes. Um, uh, hi, Andrew. Uh, hi, Damir. Nice to meet and, you. Uh, nice to meet you. And and Shadi, good to see you. Well, even though you're sort of <laughs> off screen for me here. Um, yeah, I'm 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 basically Shadi's friend. <laughs> um, I'm at the uh, I'm at the Atlantic Council. Uh, I do Europe stuff there. Uh, before that, uh, I was at the uh, I was executive editor at the American Interest magazine, which is now shut down. Um, was that with um, and you, was that Frank Fukuyama's outfit? That was Frank Fukuyama's yeah. thing. Yeah, it was Frank's. Uh, outlet, he has a new um, thing, right? He has a new. Uh, he does have a new thing. Yeah, um, it's uh, called the American Purpose. Uh, right. It's quite good. Um, good stuff there as well. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, I basically what Shadi said, uh, the, the story is, is, is basically, I think Shadi and I were, were arguing on a bus with Megan McArdle present and she in Israel, at we one should point. say in, in Israel, Israel in believe it or not, very <laughs> controversial. No, was it one of those Egged buses? Is that what they call them? Egged? Um, oh, wait, what's that? I don't know. I, th- I remember when I was in Israel, there were all these special um, Israeli bus. Well, it looked like a special Israeli yeah. bus. It had lots of special Israelis in there, with <laughs> lots of chest hair poking up above their. Uh... Yeah, I was. Anyway, let's That's not go into my. That's one thing we have in common: Arabs and and uh, Israelis. I mean, we um, chest hair is definitely prominent. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I was. Um, I went there on a high school trip to the Holy Land at the age of fourteen. And was a little taken aback by how beautiful all the men were. And, of course, was completely um, unable to express any of this stuff. Walked around like a fucking tentpole the entire week. Could barely contain myself. Uh, so that's, you know, I was a Zionist from that moment on, if only for the chest and back hair. Well, well, I, well it's interesting that we um, there was actually um, not I don't know if an effort to cancel me per se, but I was attacked a lot for even visiting Israel on that particular trip. That I was breaking BDS and I should have been as an Arab and a Muslim participating in the boycott, which meant kind of no interaction with Israeli institutions or interlocutors. That's actually a thing. Yeah. Really? You, you can't even go to regular Israel? I'm not talking about the occupied territory. No. I'm talking about regular Israel? You can't go there and like hang out? 
not really. It, <laughs> oh, Andrew, don't, don't forget the other thing. It's really important that you remember Shadi is a man of the left. And so uh, all these things apply double to him. So he's, he's, a, he's an, a leftist Muslim. He's not uh, or a at man least of the could... left. No, I, I know. I, <laughs> no, I, I, ask him. He is. He does. He thinks so. He wait, thinks he is. You, you're skeptical about that? Well, you know, I, you don't feel that way to me. But I think that's because the left now feels such a constrictive and tedious and banal and moralistic and nagging place. And I don't associate any of those adjectives with you. you well, thank you. I appreciate that. It's just a sensibility. I mean, I... I used to love uh, lefties and arguments and fights and debates, and it was always amusing. You know, I grew up <clears throat> talking about the bus. I'm now, I'm now completely getting off topic, but uh, I used to spend my entire childhood and adolescence having a fight on a bus. Um, I, uh, as a kid, because I, 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 I took this is a true story. I promise you, I took the same bus to school every day as Keir Starmer, who's now the leader of the Labour Party and the leader of the opposition in Britain. And we fought every day. I was a Thatcherite. <laughs> he at that point was some Euro-communist or something. And, uh, and we just had it out every day uh, for seven years, including in our high school, you know, in the actual school itself. Um, and I love debates on buses. What was, and you were with Megan. Yeah, and a few other people too, and um, I think Glenn Lowry was there for part of it. So this as well. was some sort of evil neocon summit, a, Christ in a Christian group. It was a Christian. Believe group? it or not, yeah, that's part <laughs> of what was controversial. Like as supposedly evangelicals, a uh, kind of evangelical. Yeah, were, were you were there. Yes, you were there. Obviously, so were these? Yeah. The, you were surrounded, but you were paid for by neoconservative yeah. evangelicals who no that's they're... right that's right that's exactly right it was my first time uh there as well uh not for shadi i don't know if shadi had been there before it's certainly my first time yeah. in israel and uh um yeah and and basically i was arguing with shadi about something i don't know what doesn't matter but megan told us to start a podcast and that's how we started the podcast basically well, uh, right there yeah because uh, we kept uh, them just sort of like in the back of the bus me and demir in a very natural way we just kept on like going back and forth and that Megan was like, hey, why don't you guys just try to just make this into something? And then uh, we decided to take it seriously. She so. was just listening. Uh, she, yeah. she took part a little bit. No, 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 no. <laughs> she was, she was. And, you know, actually, our, our greatest, our greatest uh, uh, sin so far, and it, really the plan was to have her on, and we still haven't. So uh, I think we need to rectify that. Hopefully yeah. before the year is over, but if not, like uh, way before that, because I've... yeah, actually, she she both helped found it, and actually, we we spent a lot of time on the trip talking to her, so I think it'll it'll make for for an excellent episode. In she's fantastic. She's yeah, like she's great. Twice yeah. your height, Shadi. I think she right? is a bit tall. <laughs> yeah, that's true. She's like this <laughs> end, uh, but incredibly a lovely person, and uh, we've been old old friends back when she was like just this sort of sprightly libertarian, <clears throat> along with Dave Weigel. Yeah, Dave Weigel. Yeah. It was also came out of that reason world, actually. That's right. Um, well, anyway, nice to see you guys. Uh, yeah, likewise. Yeah. Yeah. And I, this is the first time we've ever done a simulcast ourselves, so really happy to be doing it with you, um, Andrew. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Well, um, why not? <laughs> <laughs> I realize it's quite easy. You just do podcasts with other podcasters, and you, yeah. all, you all get around and <laughs> chat with each other. But it's true also that people that are doing podcasts tend to be kind of interesting characters. Um, and... I wanted to talk today about uh, what we're going through as a democracy and really maybe talk to you both about the last four years and what does this really mean? 
have some of us got it wrong? Did I overreact to what seemed to be deeply liberal and worrying forces in the society and in this particular individual who became president of the United States? And the current debate about whether what we're now enduring, which is another unique thing in American history, which is a, a losing candidate and sitting president commanding vast crowds declaring uh, that he won the election by a large amount and that the president-elect is not the president-elect. And we've also had, obviously, countless, well, how many we have now, like 40 to 50 lawsuits that have been. Yeah. And I think only one minor one has been admitted. Um, but also a huge majority of, not a huge majority, but a, a substantial majority of the voters for one of the two major parties believes this election was illegitimate, which is in itself, I think, an extraordinary crisis. I think it's worse than what happened after Trump himself was elected, mm. although I'd, I really don't think we should let people off the hook who behaved appallingly after that in doubting the legitimacy of that election. Now, I'm on more of the, 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 the world is falling, the, the sky is falling than you are. Tell me, uh, either of you, let me start with, start with Damir, maybe. Um, uh, why am I being hysteric? Why am I, why am I what, what are the major reasons why I am being a, a total drama queen about this? I, and shouldn't I don't know. be. I wouldn't characterize you as that. Um, I, I, I guess the, uh, the question for me is, I mean... Let, let's 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 sort of start unpacking basically where I, I I think we are at this point, um, and maybe you know just sort of jumping off from what you said, um, I I do think that this is, you know, exceedingly bad the situation we find ourselves in now, um, and you know, yeah, as you said, I I, I think that there's uh there's plenty of of bad behavior on on the, on the fact of you know how. Uh, the resistance was resisting Trump, but I'm not really interested in doing both sidesism on this. I think that, in and of itself, uh, also doesn't really get us anywhere. I guess my my sort of jumping off point for thinking about all of this stuff, and it's something that that like like Shadi and I have talked about in the podcast in the last like year and a half, as we've have done it. I've written about it on the the podcast website as well. Is um, and and, may, and this might be just sort of like a, a failing of my own. Like I don't know if it's a, it's I, I I think of it as a as a sort of analytical pose that's powerful and important, but I think it creates blind spots for myself as well. And that is to sort of take a step back and say, take an even broader sort of systemic look at things and try and get a grip of what things are. And that comes off a little bit, I think, as perhaps uh, too distanced and too uh, well. Quite frankly, I get I get. Uh, criticized for being too both sidesy on that by saying that well you know there were there was bad behavior leading up to this and and in fact that uh, the decline of a democracy ends up being uh, the result of a complex factor of sides interacting um, and sort of feeding off each other into this toxicity. Um, and I think that's where we're seeing right now. Ultimately, does that mean that that the Democrats are equally to blame for where we're at? In fact, no. No, not at all. I wouldn't say that at all. Um, I do think, though, that where we are right now, Andrew, and I think I take all your points that 
especially you know since the election the fact that uh this this clown emperor of ours keeps doing uh what he's doing and uh the kind of sort of i think damage that this is doing to the body politic is is real and profound um i remain convinced that that honestly the way that biden is going about this uh is the correct way it's the only way um which is basically uh he's won he is behaving as if he's won he is largely uh you know just going about the business of becoming president of this um and i i you know we can we can talk about uh uh the last 4 years and what this moment means and 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 uh but but you know from my pose and it's the pose i end up taking at this sort of like distance pose from the whole thing um is is where do we go from here and it seems to me that that the only thing that we can do uh as a democracy um is to uh you know, take stock of what it is, and we need to to get back to the the, the habits of of you know uh, a transition of power and and getting onto it. Um, again, I'm happy to spend you know a good time unpacking how this could possibly play out in the worst possible ways. But I just want to sort of, as a jumping off point, say that I do think that that you know what Biden's doing right now um, and that whole sort of aspect of it that sort of relegates admittedly a large chunk of the of the population and you know one of the two major parties as a bit of a clown sideshow uh is the right and correct way to to move forward sorry yeah i mean so i used to think that the sky was falling so when trump was running in 2016 during the campaign i remember being pretty freaked out um and it's worth remembering just how crazy and i don't even mean crazy like the stuff we've seen like the last couple of years, but stuff that went well beyond that. So, for example, um, refusing to condemn the internment of Japanese Americans, talking about maybe doing ID cards for American Muslims. He said something like, I think Islam hates us. So as an American Muslim, um, I, I was I was, you know, thinking about worst case scenarios. I mean, this is someone who seems to have a particular um, and somewhat unusual dislike of the group of which I, I, I am a part or one of the groups of which I am a part. Um, and then um, when he was actually elected, I think I was able to um, sort of reorient myself and chill and, um, you know, and maybe chilling can be too much of a problem. You don't want to be too chill because that can sometimes make you complacent, of course. But I think that what I've seen the past four years, the worst case scenarios did not happen, that American democracy proved to be quite resilient. And this was a hard test. And this is how we judge democracies. How do they react and how do they persist when they're faced with an exogenous shock, something which they've never really seen before? We've had shocks for sure, but we never had someone quite like Donald Trump. And he, I think, has tested the system and tried to push as hard as he can. What he's found is that our system pushes back and we do have veto points in our government. We do have institutions that um, are strong and somewhat autonomous that don't actually um, buckle at um, what the executive is doing and you know, so, so, so on and so forth. So I think that's where I draw some level of inspiration that it could have been really bad and we have to remember. So a lot of this but is relevant. Here's what I wanna know. Where did he fail? What did he try to do that he was prevented from doing um, by the institutions, by the checks? Because I don't see anything. 
You mean you don't see that he tried or you don't? I don't see where he was actually checkmated. Oh, where he was checked. Okay. By, for example, the Congress, which is, you know, was elected uh, the opposite party after two years and huge amounts of scandal and stuff to investigate. And they did. And they even went to the lengths of impeachment. The man never had a single member of his administration testify before them. He acted as an executive completely above and beyond any congressional testimony. He defied subpoenas. He defied any lawsuits. He challenged back. He sued back. We never got his tax returns. We don't have a single thing on this guy. He was able to turn what was a pretty damning report by Bob Mueller. I mean, not, not anything like the crazy conspiracy theories that were jumped up before, but nonetheless, and I think that was part of the problem, that if you, if you didn't have that, oh, he's an agent of Moscow situation, and you just looked at what he'd been doing, including his first attempt to rig this election by getting a foreign government to smear Biden, uh, I just don't see a single moment when he was actually stopped from doing something he really tried to do. Now, you can say he didn't get some things done, like the wall, for example, but he never really tried to fund it. I mean, he could have done those first two years and really didn't. It was his fault, not, not the Democrats. So I, I, I see that nothing stood in his way whatsoever. Well, so when I look at the worst things that Trump has done the past four years, I, I, those things to me are the things that a conventional Republican president would have done. When you actually Invent look at Invent a national emergency um, in order to shift funds from the Congress to, to pay for something that he wanted that Congress didn't name in other no, Republican I mean, so, presidents so, so, got away with that. No, but like when I act, when we look at what actually hurts people in discrete policy terms, it's things like breaking up families um, when it comes to immigration at the borders or um, and that's something, for example, that any other um, Republican president, Ted Cruz or whoever else uh, might have done in a similar way, pushing really hard, perhaps doing it more competently. So when we or. Um, you know, whatever, whatever the um, tax cuts, for example, or mismanaging the economy or um, not uh, closing, not addressing inequality in any kind of way or um, reversing. Uh, sure. I mean, I'm not talking about policy agenda in a way, because in some ways, I think policy is a bit irrelevant to all of this, because, yeah, much of what he did turns out to be rather conventional Republican policy. Yeah. I mean, massive tax cuts that are basically paid for by borrowing um, <clears throat> to keep the economy moving. But, and he did deregulate stuff that, in, in a way. What I'm getting at is constitutionally, as the executive branch, he ran this country as if there were no Congress, as if there were no opposition whatsoever, no institutional checks regardless. He was not checked really. I mean, in some cases with immigration courts, they over, I think they overstepped, but they did try and check a few things along the way, and he kept going. But, but by and large, um, he got away with it. And not only that, but you can see as he was rebuilding his case for re-election that I think without COVID, he would have won quite handily. Uh, after which, having proven that he is immune to any congressional uh, checking and almost to most of the courts that he obeyed were in trivial matters, but on fundamental matters like accountability, he was, he got away with absolutely everything and was about to get away with far more. I mean, I think the system catastrophically failed.
Hmm. That's a different perspective, I think. But tell me where <laughs> I'm wrong. Andrew, but Andrew, which which are you are you are you are you most concerned? Um, because I, I I I'm still you know fair everything you listed uh, except what's the lasting legacy of this that these are new norms and paths that, that have been set you yeah, think a, a future we, we, you we, think do you think do you think do you think a future republican or democratic uh charismatic you'd need a, a certainly charismatic leader to hold one's party in thrall like that correct right i mean that's one thing um in some ways there's that there's that element of trump that's that i mean he is he is uh um Kind he is of sui generis in that way, right? And I, I mean, what again? Just drill in for me. Are you, you're concerned about like the precedents, the, the the precedents that he successfully set? I completely agree. We got lucky because of COVID. Because I do think in the second term he's figured out the monkey that he is, where most of the levers are in the machine room, and uh, you know, I think he'd be more deft at pulling them and much clearer in his own mind what he can and can't can't get away with. Um, but ultimately, you know. Uh, it's it's you know to restate Shadi's point to in a in a different sort of way, um, the fact is is that the Republican Party, uh, to a certain extent, was powerless before its voters that he whom he had managed to mobilize behind his personality, uh, but also they were getting a lot of the stuff that they wanted out of him from from the policy thing. And again, so so again, drill in for me exactly your concern. Is it is it the the norm breaking or is it that it's just been revealed to all of us that that presidents are largely unconstrained because he's he's figured some stuff out that's that's been sitting there forever, really yes. is another way to look at it. So yes. I don't know. Uh, unpack that for me a little. Well, bit. Well, like, here's what I would say: that uh, over the last, spe- especially fifty years, maybe seventy years since the Second World War, the executive branch has become extraordinarily more powerful than it ever was previously. Certainly not anything before the 20th century. Now it's almost unrecognizable in terms of its power uh, and its authority. And that's everybody looks to the president. You know, the Congress is almost irrelevant. They've kind of surrendered a huge amount of their powers. Um, so this, this guy comes along with that legacy. I mean, just look at what Bush and Cheney managed to do to American civil liberties um, and does something else, which is he creates a mass movement, an extraordinarily potent, powerful, uh, right populist mass movement that is dedicated to him more than anything else. Him. Uh, it's not really a set of policies. It's a set of attitudes and prejudices and feelings, some of which are completely legitimate um, and justified in many ways by the way elites have mismanaged this country. But nonetheless, that's what he did. So we then had this sort of Eric Hoffer moment well, we don't really have a Republican Party. It's over. It's disappeared as a party. It doesn't really have any institutional power except insofar as he has energized it into a mass movement. So it's no longer a functioning political party as we would understand it. It's a mass movement that seized power um, <clears throat> narrowly, but, but nonetheless, that's all you need. He got in. And with that, was able to command the entire Republican Party, Senate and, and House, was able to fill the judiciary with people who would, who were, whose one common characteristic was complete deference to executive power and a belief that the judiciary should really not really have a role in checking congressional laws or executive, especially executive pronouncements. Um, and then was attempted to be checked 
by a midterm election, which is what normally did. And we've showed that the Congress is absolutely incapable of enforcing its subpoenas, its, its testimony, its, its powers to push the presidency back. Just countersue, just refuse to cooperate, just tell everyone in your administration you can't appear before the Congress. This has also never happened in modern times. Uh, so he proves that you, you can't impeach a president. If you have a mass movement, you can take over a political party. And if you can then abuse the system so that you just simply borrow money to fuel the economy, you can win yourself re-election. Well, I mean, there was strong counteraction. I mean, there was an impeachment process. There was the Mueller investigation. There were things that were hobbling Trump for much of his four years in office in terms of um, Democrats um, highlighting his abuses. And then it's up to then to the American people and their elected representatives to decide what they want to do with that. But there was no shortage of holding Trump to account. Look at the media. I mean, the entire mainstream yeah. media has been, I would say, somewhat obsessively um, going too far in becoming just, anti, you know, everything is anti-Trump. Um, you know, some of that is useful in that it does provide a check that you had a very vigorous media. You did have a vigorous Democrat, uh, Democrats pushing hard back against Donald Trump, perhaps too hard. And I would say one thing that I was uncomfortable was the tendency sometimes to delegitimize the election results after the fact. Um, and this wasn't just a fringe thing. As recently as 2019, Hillary Clinton was still saying that the election was, quote unquote, stolen from her. Harry Reid, uh, former Senate Majority Leader, um, actually suggested that the Russians might have tampered with the vote tallies in 2016. And again, I, I, I want to make sure that I want to be clear that I think what Republicans are doing now is significantly worse than what Democrats did after Trump was elected. They are not equivalent. But I think it is also worth noting that the tendency to not see the other side as legitimate is becoming a bipartisan thing. That I he, agree. I, I'm not going to disagree with that at all. But that, I think, is I'm trying to use that evidence to strengthen my point, which is you could have a massive opposition. You could have intense press hostility. You could have a, con a Congress elected uh, in the midterms deliberately and quite clearly to hold him to account. Got nowhere. So, and, so and he, he could have easily, apart from this little thing in the air, he could have won re-election. Also, having uh, attempted to use his foreign policy powers to, to target his political enemy, um, and and every time he won, which is every time, he was emboldened. And the greater the rhetorical overkill that he engaged in, and the, the less legitimate the mainstream media and liberal institutions became uh, with respect to the general public, including critical institutions like the FBI and the CIA, we had a president saying these institutions are illegitimate. They're after you. They're being run by a conspiracy against you and, and did not lose much support in his own mass movement for saying those things. Demir, you were, you were, you were going to cut No, it. no, no. I, look, the, here, here's the thing with what's... Uh, here's where, where I, perhaps I disagree with Shadi. Um, no, Demir, you're, maybe you're not allowed I, to do and that. I, <laughs> and, 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 maybe, and maybe I agree with you, Andrew, but I, I, I still think that maybe the, the, the difference is, is, is in how, how one, one approaches this. I think Shadi is, Shadi is a... a self-described democratic minimalist. Now let him talk about that, uh, what that means and the implications of that. 
Um, but I, I think that 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 the the a different way to think about what you're talking about, Andrew, is that America actually has been in democratic decline for a while. And the reason, that, you know, just as you were talking right now, I I, I remembered um, an interesting, not an episode, it's an article that we ran uh, in the American Interest in 2013. I just looked it up. It was by Francis Fukuyama, uh, so second term Obama. Uh, I think he just finished his second volume of his two volume, like magnum opus or whatever, and it was sort of like a, a summary document of that. Um, and the, the, you know, the, the gist of the second volume is about, uh, basically it's about modern state building, how the, the modern democratic state and, you know, the United States came to be as part of this sort of cross, you know, you tried to write a global history in any case. Um, and I remember, you know, uh, so 2013, uh, he is, he's reasonably supportive of Obama. I think he was largely felt that was a, a good presidency. Um, and uh, the frustration is really showing in that article. He calls it that, you know, our democracy has become uh, um, sclerotic in a lot of ways, unmanageable. Too many choke points, he was saying in 2013. Like, actually, nothing can be done in our democracy. And so, you know, at the end, as you do in these sort of papers and, and sort of stuffy policy journals, you have to have a sort of and therefore we should. But he did actually a really good job sort of subverting that 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 honorable DC tradition. And he said, well, ideally, perhaps we should have something closer to a parliamentary system and not two monolithic parties. And then these things perhaps work at them, uh, themselves out. But then he says, of course, where it's America, uh, the Constitution is a, a quasi-religious document for us. And so the last words are, so we have a problem. But consider in 2013, before Trump, the main frustration was that there were not enough choke points. Uh, no sense that anything like Trump were about to happen was about to happen. And here comes this guy um, and, you know, basically does exactly what you described through the force of his personality, uh, creates this kind of, uh, you know, transforms a party into a mass movement that is, you know, focused on the individual. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I think as we talk about what happens next after this, perhaps you're right. Perhaps the Republican Party is now basically can't exist outside of him. Um, I'm 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 open to that. And what does that mean for us then? What does that mean for us as Americans? Uh, as you know, what does it mean for the country if one of two major parties in a uh, presidential system that tends to have to settle into a two-party system? Uh, what does it mean that um, uh, there has not been that that it's been unable to uh, reform one of those two parties? I mean, I guess I one could be uh, cautiously. Uh, hesitantly, uh, if not optimistic, careful about pronouncing the death of the Republican Party, or at least like the 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 fact that Trump has somehow barnacle-like attached himself to the party and won't be pried off in any way. But I think it's it's perfectly plausible to read the last four years as a as an important spasm in what is democratic decline for the United States. I don't know. Yes, <clears throat> I think it's I, I I don't really think that we live in a liberal democracy anymore. Um, in many respects, um, I think he's succeeded and nearly succeeded more. Let me, let me, let me put this scenario. You know, what we also know is that in the last year or so, emboldened by being able to uh, ignore the Congress and to some extent the courts, uh, he clearly decided that he was going to get reelected. And he clearly decided he was going to get reelected whether he won the majority of votes or not. Now, his first attempt was to abuse his power with the Ukraine stuff and Biden to try and get them to smear him. And then we also have this astonishing fact that he <clears throat> paved the way throughout this last year 
of delegitimizing the results of this election and of all mail-in ballots. He is subsequently, he refused to concede. He is consistently from the White House itself saying that he actually won by a landslide, that 20, only 26 members of his party in the Congress will publicly tell a newspaper that Biden won the election, which is pretty staggering. He has also personally called the legislatures in Pennsylvania, Georgia, um, <clears throat> and uh, where's the other state that he's, he's, he's uh, anyway, I'm, I'm blanking on the third one, uh, uh, to ask them to get the state legislatures to overturn the electors, there is a point at which they can do this, to send electors to the Electoral College from those states that will, that will vote for him rather than for Biden. Now, given his institutional clout, given the fact the party is him at some point, the fact that that has not been done is, is you're right, that's a, that's ha that's, that's, that's a relief. That the two or three, three of these Republican governors or secretaries of state have actually stood up and said, we just can't do this. Uh, but he asked, and he'll continue to ask, this is, this is, an, am I, is this not an attempt to establish one-man rule? Uh, and hasn't he pushed it to a level which, which, which shocks you? But, but doesn't it tell us something that he's trying, um, but it keeps on being resisted despite the fact that he dominates this party, that you do have Republicans on the local and state level who are not going to rig the vote because, I mean, the, the tallies are the tallies and there's only so much you can do and they're going to be certified. So everything that Trump is trying trying to do, I would say somewhat half-heartedly and somewhat performatively, I don't know if he really wants to be a dictator, um, but um, regardless of what is intense. You, you don't have to want to be a dictator to be incapable of accepting any, any other actor in the system telling you what to do or checking your powers. That's all he has. He's not sitting back having studied the history of dictators and figured out how to take over the country. He is just psychologically incapable of accepting any yeah. authority other than himself. But the point is he can't do the things that he supposedly wants to do. And, and I think also when you look at how the certification process works and that we have a very clear set of institutional mechanisms for deciding who the president is, Technically, Donald Trump does not need to concede for the inevitable reality that um, Joe Biden will be our president in, in January. So that to me, that to me tells us that, it, you know, if we have someone like Trump in the future who's as charismatic, um, which is probably unlikely, but it's possible someone like that, that again, the system, the system can be counted on. And you, you can't really alter the result. Now, th that's obviously a low bar. All I'm saying is that people were people were talking about how American democracy was dying for much of the last four years. And you had a number of leading scholars writing books about the impending fascism that was upon us. Very alarmist type stuff. And I think at some point we have to look at the empirical record four years later and say, OK, well, um, if if American democracy was already dead or it was dying and people were warning warning about like a Mussolini moment and all this kind of very, I think, um, problematic rhetoric comparing us with, say, I don't know, Nazi, Nazi era Germany and so on. 
I mean, shouldn't there be some accountability for the people? And, you know, you've spoken out against using the, the term fascist as you did in your Weimar piece. Um, but like, shouldn't shouldn't we be able to say, like, look, um, it, it's been bad, but the people who were saying this was the end. No, we're going to have another chance and it the, the experiment will continue. Um, and um, we shouldn't use words like fascism um, in this kind of unaccountable, overheated way, because that that contributes to a raising of the stakes. And, you know, as bad as the Republican Party is quite bad and rotten and corrupt. Um, but and we only have two parties. So at some point, it's Democrats who have to kind of take a step back from this endless mutual polarization. And that's a chance that we'll have in the next four years. And that's why, I, like as Demir said, I'm relieved that we have a president who doesn't engage in that rhetoric of endless polarization, of demonizing the other. I mean, that's what we need now. And hopefully we can stop um, this sort of like endless, this, this endless cycle. I mean, my point is simply look yeah. how close it got. Look what this guy was able to attempt to do. Yeah. Someone who really an attack on the very basic legitimacy of our elections in a way that foreign powers attempted to legitimize our elections for many years. He has done this. And we escaped the worst by the skin of our teeth. This is a man who's clearly openly dictatorial authoritarian. And you look at the election, the Republican Party did, I don't know, pretty solidly. I mean, a very large turnout, very engaged voters gaining seats in the House. Yeah. Whole, I think probably almost certainly holding the Senate. I mean, when I think of any other contemporary modern democracy, there isn't a single precedent for this well, let me since ask, the Second World War. Well, Am I wrong? Well, what about the case of... Can you give me another example of a Western democracy where someone has lost the election and insists that it's a, a fraud and his entire party agrees with him? It's unusual, to be fair. You're definitely right about that. You know, unprecedented. Yes. A disgrace, right? It's something that we should be ashamed of. We're, 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 this, is the, this is the kind of activity that happens in a developing country, in, 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 in an unsteady democracy. That in some ways, what I think we learn is that, 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 that our institutions have failed. They are, they, they have, or if they have succeeded, they've succeeded by the skin of their teeth. And we have seen in America a huge number of people basically almost half the country, endorse it, believe in it, support it. There is no big popular understanding or defense of democratic uh, processes. Or well, it's all, we all took it for granted. It's not there at all. One guy comes along with enough charisma, with enough ability to press certain buttons and pull certain levers, which anybody can do in, in, in a democracy. Uh, and we came this close to the whole thing falling apart. Even now, I think it's, it's not clear that we'll have a, an election day, an inauguration day where Trump may be flying out of the White House to have a, a mass rally to compete with the inauguration of, of Joe Biden. I mean, I, I don't know why you guys are complacent about this. Well, he's, perhaps Demir is less complacent. Well, but let's, let me, let's get Demir yeah. in because I, I don't mean to. I've been blathering. And, and go on, Demir. What no, do you, what? Look, I, look, so here's the thing. I... I, I, I I'm perfectly happy to grant you all that, like every every last bit of it. Um, but the 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 question then is, you know, I guess what I'm always reacting to on this, and this is what I was getting at my my sort of you know 
what I what I first said is, and as maybe it's a it's a shortcoming of my own about how I approach these things, but my my difference with you, Andrew, is that uh, I can grant you all of this and say, and and then my question is, and, and then where does this leave us? Let's now think clearly about where we are as a country, because I, I'll just reframe one thing to you. I mean, fair point. We didn't know that our institutions were this, you know, uh, weak. Well, yeah, I guess not. At the same time, most people, not mo I remember reading several articles at the, the beginning of the Trump era saying, in fact, hey, guys, let's not forget, in fact, most of our, our guardrails are, in fact, completely norm-based, not written down. The Constitution doesn't make any provisions for this. We have like a, a you know, a, our entire system is based on this kind of sense of tradition that is very fragile. So in a sense, yeah, we didn't think that 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 something like this could happen. I, I want to just get you to to talk to me a little bit about exactly the implications of what you're saying and the implications of of your despair. Um, and I'm not saying that you don't have a right to despair, but I, I want you to to work through it with me. And it's it's the following: it's the question of exactly what you said. What does it mean that uh, the Republicans did as well as they did? that they did as well as they did with, uh, supposedly, we don't know yet, I guess, because these are still somewhat uh, hazy, but the exit polls are coming in to, to, to focus a little bit. And, you know, the bump with Hispanics is real. I forget, Shadi, you have some statistic about number of Muslims that voted for, for Trump yeah. as well. I mean, these things are real. Now, whether that is, um, is that is that a sign of, of uh, um, democracy that is just not working? that is completely messed up because they, all these people have fallen into the cult? Uh, or is it that, you know, uh, you know, perhaps it's functioning reasonably well still and there's this like sideshow going on? I don't know. And I, I again, I want to stress to you, Andrew, that I, 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 I'm quite open to the idea that, that we're in a much worse place than we are. But I then want to talk about, and what now? Because, um, because the question is, is basically, you know, we need to be looking forward to what does our democracy look like? I can tell you, I, I said this on the last episode with Shadi, sitting here in Europe, now being distant from all of this and, and seeing the sort of Trump eruptions appear in my, you know, Twitter feed and, and you know, now increasingly less and less on the front page of the, of the newspapers. It is embarrassing. It's an embarrassment. That's exactly the right feeling when you're, when you're especially when you're far away from America, watching it from afar. It's it's shameful, and that this is happening. You're right; it's unprecedented. But you know, I I I, to me, the interesting debate right now, debate. The interesting question is, um, what does our democracy look like going forward? Um, yeah, you know, the this this question of the party. You know, is is yeah, Trump will probably run in 2024. Question whether he'll live that long. He's an old fat man. Um, you know, all these sorts of. Uh, things can can intervene between now and then but but ultimately i i'd like to sort of think about and talk to you guys about this question of um how much is trump and it's it's not the first time this question's been asked but is trump a symptom of like a deeper decay that's been that's been happening that maybe now you know like in a fatal disease it comes on late and it's like oh god we're, we're much sicker than we thought we were um or is uh or is he some sort of primal mover of this. My main like thing that that irks me about most of the commentary is that I I I fundamentally feel that that Trump is symptomatic, not causal. Now, um for all these sorts of reasons that I mean I it, and and so it, it it can be both and. I mean yes, it, for sure. it, it can and, be and he's both an symptomatic yeah. and 
and intensifying the crisis by by his sheer talent, his sheer yes. demagoguery, and his contempt for democratic processes, institutions, and, and norms. Um, he is remarkable. I mean, to argue against myself, when I think of something like FDR, here we have someone possibly attempting a fourth term, tempted to pack the court, uh, assumed vast powers that the presidency had never assumed before, had uh, big majorities in the Congress. Now, he was, he was an emergency president, so you had a certain number of precedents in there, and you can't really see uh, 2000 <clears throat> uh, and 16 is an emergency in the sense that the Great Depression was. Um, and therefore, I think there's less excuse. And there are also higher standards as the modern era has emerged in controlling presidents. Um, now, the truth, of course, though, is that in previous eras, the presidency was much less powerful than it is today. So I, I think you have uh, several things working at once, all of which are very disturbing. Um, and I, uh, so I think you have your average American not giving a shit about the rule of law, about congressional opposition, about whether you should agree to a subpoena. They just don't. There's nothing there. There's no education. There's no civic education. Uh, I, you know, I've always seen this and I still see it from the perspective of the ancient political philosophers which is that this democracy is, is, is on the verge and is, it, 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 it's reached the point in late-stage democracy in which, uh, in which tyrants will emerge, that, that one men, those charismatic figures, are the people who are going to be leading this institution, that Republican institutions, by small r, are, are really irrelevant, that, that you also see this, for example, in the decay and collapse of the Roman Republic, which is another fascinating example of this, where little precedents are set. Oh, well, this time we're going to let this happen. Okay, well, we'll do it this time. We'll allow that to happen. It isn't that big a deal. Like the Senate still exists. And then, boom, very quickly, it unravels. Mm. Um, I think American democracy and liberal democracy is in a death spiral. And I think you also see this in our debate. We don't have a liberal, uh, a very liberal uh, space for argument and debate anymore. You, you also see that tribalizing to an extraordinary extent around this figure. Um, so now what do we do to answer your question, Demir? I think, I think Biden, whether by luck or design or chance or genius, has figured out the by far the best way of doing this. And he won. No one, the Democrats didn't really do that well. He managed to get there. Why? Hardly campaigning at all. <laughs> I mean, never saying anything controversial. Uh, essentially being, I'm the old guy, you know. And I think the country thought, well, this, this president is he's obviously off his rocker. I mean, he, he says things every day that we know are untrue. I think even his supporters understand that. Um, so let's just have this guy to, to sort of and, 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 and if, he, uh, if he just behaves that role, if he's this sort of figurehead and does things that are broadly popular, like a big stimulus, for example, um, some green investment, I, I think a public option, uh, these things may be doable. Um, he stands a chance of steadying the whole system. And, and, and he stands a chance of being a bit of a narcotic in an extremely fevered time. And, and so I think that's great. 
I wanted him to be the nominee from the get-go for those reasons. I don't think any other, and maybe I'm wrong about this, what you think, I don't think any other of those Democrats would have won this election. I don't. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's telling to me about the strength of the Democratic Party. He doesn't have someone who could have done that, except for this guy. This old, this old guy. But even then, we cut it pretty close. I mean, I, I mean, that night just about a month ago was pretty scary in that, I mean, it became clear that the margin was actually wider than we thought at that particular moment. But I think that I was in an election party. Actually, Demir was there, too, where I think a lot of us were like, it really shouldn't be this close. The fact that there are three or four states where the margins are so slim. Here's a uniquely polarizing and I would say shitty president, Donald Trump. and we have this much trouble beating him, which gets to the broader issue of, you know, why are Democrats so weak or so uncompelling that we have so much trouble beating a party that's as rotten and corrupt uh, as you're saying it is, right? That's, so that's one thing. But I, 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 I want to push you a bit on the, on the FDR comparison because I, I do think Trump was an emergency president, at least for the last year. COVID being the emergency, but also we had unrest in major cities across the country. And this is where I think the argument that Trump was a dictator in the making is a little bit weaker in that he had basically two contexts where he really could have seized, really used the, the, the opportunity of chaos to seize power, to consolidate power and to push really hard on on COVID, unprecedented, and also on um the the protests, the Black Lives Matter protests that were happening throughout the country. And he actually abdicated responsibility. He said, I don't actually want to deal with a lot of this stuff. And he almost disappeared in some ways from uh, the public scene. He would just sort of like not engage on these issues and he would ignore COVID. Um, he would threaten about sending sending troops in. You know, he did send, you know, agents in, in Portland and things like that. But for the most part, he left it up to states and localities to deal with their own issues. Now, that tells us something that um, in any other situation, any other dictator type person would have said, here is my opportunity. And Ross doubt that has really made this case quite a bit. I think it's pretty compelling. And so that's that's one. So he had his chance. Does that tell us something about the limits of this would be authoritarianism. I'd just be curious how you would respond to that specific aspect. And now maybe it would have been better if you had a national approach, an aggressive approach to COVID. I mean, that's a different issue, which is interesting that I think that in an ideal world, you, you some on the left might have wanted the president to really take control, but it's also be careful what you wish for. Would we really want Trump to be extremely involved on COVID response and try to interfere with what states are doing and apply some uniform approach. It's also so that's that's actually the the blessings and the curse of our system, you know, in some ways. Yeah, I think Donald Trump is a really uh, interesting character from this respect, because I think if you think of him, he does have he's instinctually a tyrant, like he's not interested in he just has no understanding of a non-zero sum engagement. Everything has to be uh, him controlling everything, and yet, uh, and him at the center of everything and the center of attention. It turns out that this guy, you can't really, it's too much work. He's also <laughs> lazy. He's also interested in the glory, but not the power as much. And so 
uh, you know, he's he's and it's hard to see what his real goal is to control anything except his own glory and fame, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so, he, yes, the, we, we, you don't have power mad people trying to control a vast apparatus of power watching cable news all day. <laughs> if there is this paradox of him, um, which is that he's not right. Controlling things requires too much uh, energy, discipline, concentration, focus uh, that he is simply incapable of. He represents, he represents, I think, the tyrannical id, not the tyrannical ego. Hmm. And, and so he has this essentially tyrannical sense, uh, but the system did require that to become truly dangerous, to have organization, to have management skills, to have people who can go out there and exactly do control things. What matters is that he was the successful president. That's what matters. And, and I, I, I agree with you. He, he didn't, my great fear back in 2016, or in a couple of fears, was that I, I even wrote this um, back in May of 2016. Uh, you know, there's an incident with a cop killing a young black man, and the place goes up in flames, and he, he takes that as an opportunity to enforce some sort of martial law or some kind of... And when push came to shove, he didn't. And I do think that's important, uh, and I acknowledge that point, hmm. absolutely. It doesn't mean that he doesn't, wouldn't have liked yeah. to have done that. He didn't have the skills. But I think it's also true that even without the skills, that's just not in his, as long as he is free to do whatever the fuck he wants, and no one criticizes him, he's fine. To actually do what he wants, to actually execute it, is a much difficult, much more difficult and complicated process. And I don't think he, I don't think he had that in him, which means we lucked out. Um, but yeah, so I, I'm, I'm not going to, and when you think about, as, as Ross has, has, has pointed out, when you think about the opportunity COVID would present yeah. a possible dictator. Um, so he has this, this strange uh, American kind of dictatorship, which is which I want to be the boss man. I'm the only boss man. Nothing else matters. But I don't actually want to enforce this <laughs> everywhere because it would take far too much energy and concentration. And that's, that's how I'm trying to understand yeah, this. Yeah, that makes sense. But I'm yeah. also trying to understand from the way in which the system responded to this guy and what he could have gotten away with if he'd, if he'd had the skill set to do so. Um, and the way in which an entire national party enabled and supported and still is enabling and supporting this person, I mean, Ted Cruz apparently is prepared to go to the Supreme Court to argue. The, the, I don't know what, he's, what, what, what bullshit he's going to argue. But I, but, but, and the fact that senators, senators, Republican senators can't say Biden won this election um, is, 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 is obviously disturbing. But, you know, I'm, I have to concede on that. I, I, the, I, my, my worst fears were not realized. Okay, um, yeah. And... And so, but is that because the system checked him or because he just couldn't be bothered? That's what I'm, I think if he, if he tried with majorities in both House and Senate, uh, he could have done whatever the bloody hell he wanted. So, um, so I mean, to be, to, be, to be worried though, I mean, you know, you, you bring up the classical example. Um, and I think it's useful to think in those terms. But again, to think in those terms, again, to try and abstract Trump out of it. Um, do you think, 
you know, again, I think it's overused when people talk about populism, about the elites uh, being rotten and, and, and uh, um, you know, that this is some kind of reaction against that. But to what extent do you think that, that you know, the, the real parallel here is that, that, I mean, America has been progressively been getting less and less aristocratic since its founding. Um, but, you know, I, the extent to which that, that there's a, a kind of hollowness there that, again, was sort of filled in and that there was a, there was a, there was a desire there, again, not to cite my, my, uh, my dear former professor, Frank Fukuyama, as some sort of proof that there was a desire for a loosening of the system to get things done before Trump even was a glimmer in anyone's eye. But it's, it's visible there. I mean, I think Democrats are quite frustrated after Obama being stymied at every turn by, uh, again, this kind of petty bickering of the elites. And that, sure, some of us chin strokers would say, well, this is systems designed to work slowly and this is good. And the founders, the, the framers intended it this way. But there's an increasing sense, I think, among voters in general that um, the system wasn't working. It was gridlocked and uh, worse than that, staffed at the higher levels by uh, careerist, you know, shits. Pardon me. I don't know if you curse on your podcast, but um, <laughs> Fuck that, no. that uh, <laughs> um, and and that that something needed to change right here. Uh, again, this is not an excuse I'm making for Trump voters. It's a hackneyed excuse. Something needed to change. But I think it is important to, to note that there's a, some kind of frustration, a kind of hollowness at the at the top. Um, one way to look at, at 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 this election and this close election is that 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 dissatisfaction uh, has not dissipated, and the the trust in the last four years by the elites opposing Trump has not been has not the the crisis of Trump has not redounded to their benefit. They have not seized the opportunity to rebuild trust. In fact, they've squandered it and made it worse. Uh, however, the the vast incompetence and flailing buffoonery of the this orange troglodyte has has. Um, uh, also disqualified him, I think, in, in the face of a lot of voters. So what you have, perhaps, is a kind of split election. Uh, half the country still doesn't believe, and this maybe partially explains why, why they're, they're, they're still so hell-bent on, on doing this, um, uh, this whole thing that, that Biden didn't win. I'm not saying that this is some kind of false consciousness or even performative, but it is a big F you to the establishment as well. It's just like, you know, I, I don't buy anything that's coming out of you. So half the country is still in that mode. And the other half of the country got a good look at what, what the F you looks like and got particularly worried. So perhaps that hasn't yet been worked out. Still, I think there's plenty to be worried about. Again, you're right that, that, uh, you know, again, we've talked about this in this episode, right? That, that, that it's, that, there's something special about Trump, about that charisma that allows you to create this kind of thing. And maybe that's not replicable. And maybe in four years, he's too demented or debilitated to be able to pull it off. Uh, that that's still possible is troubling. The flip side of that is, again, maybe, Andrew, you can talk about in the classical example, is the hollowness of whatever the aristocratic element in society is. Call it the elites, whatever. It's gone. Mm -hmm. it's, it's the meritocratic thing has just created a, a bunch of hollow-chested men at top and women. Um, and, and it's, uh, uh, it's, and, and perhaps this, that's this, part of the problem. This of course is part of the ancient understanding too, of the elites uh, in this situation, uh, that once the dem democratic forces intensify, elites lose their legitimacy. And the other critical part is the elites are more interested and this you get very much in Plato and Aristotle in money. And that when push comes to shove, when the actual constitution and political institutions are at risk, they will say, well, at least I'm making money. We'll opt out 
in some ways of their responsibilities as elites in order to simply pursue profit. And you, you saw that throughout the Republican Party, uh, <clears throat> among the Republican elites, a cynical acceptance of this because, after all, you've got the tax cuts. We've goosed this long recovery into, a, into, a, into another frenzy. Um, and also regular people were doing really pretty well and, uh, as, as before COVID hit. Um, it turns out, the, I think, that some of the policies that, that Trump did, and again, I'm not really interested in policies because they, they're always going to be different. different. It's, it's about the constitutional uh, framework I, I'm talking about. But if you look at the policies, I do actually think an attempt to restrain immigration as you, as you pump the economy full of demand will help. Um, and, and that is probably why you've seen significant shifts to, toward Trump from, from ethnic minorities, um, even, even gays insofar as they measure gays anymore. Uh, uh, and, 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 and so that, that's another thing. So I, I'm, looking at, I'm looking at all the advantages he had. I think COVID was a sort of deus ex machina in a way that came in here. I remember saying like, uh, like over a year ago, what on earth is going to stop this guy getting reelected and, and, and came to a conclusion that only, only an act of God would do it. And it turned out an act of God did show up in this Fools hideous way. the United States of America, right? The, the Bismarck quote is, uh, is, is correct again. And we're saved <laughs> we got lucky. by... Yeah, uh, but it seems to me that the broader atmosphere here is not um, very propitious, and that we haven't resolved anything with the selection really, except we've removed the crazy person, who may be more effective without power. I mean, what was fascinating about watching Trump the last four years is his ability to rail against the very government he's supposed to be running. That that he's a he's really strongest out of power projecting power. And I think the ability of this mass movement, which is which, to cripple the presidency of Biden um, and to s further spread, I mean, let us, let us also remember that, you know, p that, that some secretaries of state, you know, running, have had their houses, their actual yeah. houses surrounded. You've seen also in terms of liberal norms and procedures in democracies, you've seen, for example, the fact that protests are no longer enough. You see the, the, the personalization of this. You see physical intimidation of public officials. You see people having to go into hiding for doing their constitutional duty. You see on the streets people doing things they never used to do in demonstrations, invade, passes by, in, eating in restaurants. Uh, uh, or you see among the elites demonizations, attempts to get people fired. You know, these are not these are not processes that happen in a liberal democracy. They're they're processes that happen in in what is an incipient uh, uh, populist authoritarian kind of of, of 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 culture. It's not what we were used to. But to and, be fair, I mean, yeah. we don't see. I mean, we're not seeing mass unrest from Republican voters. Like you might imagine that if seventy percent of Republicans and Trump supporters see the result as illegitimate, they would be taking to the streets and really getting angry. I think one mm. plus side is that it seems that a lot of people, when they're asked by pollsters, they say, oh, we don't think um, we're not sure if Biden won or we think that the election was rigged, but they're not actually following that up with any kind of anti-system anger or mobilization. That's, I think, what a lot of people were fearing, that right wing paramilitias 
paramilitaries would be going around and terrorizing people. We have seen very limited right wing mobilization. And then you have to wonder how much of this is operating. Again, this is where I think narrative and rhetoric is one level of analysis. Then we have what actually happens on the ground. And I think I put a little bit less emphasis on the narrative because I feel like a lot of it ends up being intangible. So fine, 70 percent of Republicans have questions about um, how this election was conducted. They're kind of pissed off, but not really. Then what? They find a way to live with it and life moves on and they're not going to actually be spending the next four years destroying democracy. They're going to live with a Biden presidency, just as Democrats. um, I don't think they did a great job of living with a Trump presidency, but, you know, Trump continued being president, president life. Life went on. So I just wonder, like what when we're really afraid, what does that actually mean on the ground if Trump supporters aren't actually mobilizing? Because, I mean, also after 2000, there were you know many Democrats who didn't really consider the election to be free and fair. So this is not a brand new thing. I mean, for a while now, whenever the other party wins, there's going to be a group of people who feel disenfranchised. But then, you know, so I, I'm. Yeah, except that you would expect more than 26 Democrats after the election last time to agree that Trump won the election. Yeah. And, you know, you did have Obama inviting Trump in a couple of days later. You had Hillary conceding the next day. Um, You had that. You had a uh, and you had a recognition, at least, that this was. But look, I'm open to that debate. And part of me wonders whether I'm just read too much political theory. Uh, I, I've, you know, focused on how liberal democracies fail too much, that I'm in my head too much, that I'm online too much, that, that the narratives competing in my head are actually too fevered for reality in America. Um, and so then you get to this point, and, and I take your point, we haven't, you know, the country is not collapsing uh, in mass anger and fury. Um, although quite how COVID is related to that, who knows. Mm. But so therefore the question becomes uh, for someone like me or you uh, is, so do, do we poo-poo this or do we, are we the people whose job it is to warn and to, and to throw up flares? Now, I, we all have different roles, you know, yeah. and, and I, I think our key thing is to tell the truth so far as we can. And we don't know what's happening. You know, there's a huge amount of just not knowing how the country is. And we're, you know, we're gleaning exit polls. We're gleaning from. uh, So maybe you're right. And if you if you just if you were living your life in a, you know, a small town somewhere and you didn't really take much interest in politics, you notice people were getting a little steamed up and crazy. And this other this dude came in and they would. You were doing fine until this bloody plague came on, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, life goes on. And what the hell are you all talking about? If I had just gone offline four years ago. But then I wonder, well, wasn't that also happening in other countries which actually were tipping into real crises? Is that not going to always be the view of the regular person? Is it not our job to notice when some serious bloody problems are emerging? And especially when the American people is not, are not that invested in their system. Uh, they are pretty invested in, in sort of venting. And, I, and the other thing I, I worry about is just, you know, again, the, the two different worlds we're living in, in which 
very, very hard for there to be any kind of compromise or, or single national response when we're really in different universes of, of reality in a way that I don't think necessarily is true in much of the 20th century uh, and probably wasn't true for much of the 19th either, except for, you know, the period before the Civil War, hmm. when, when these realities really did diverge as to what America was. So, um, yeah, I hope, we, I, hope we, I hope we maneuver through this somehow. I hope we muddle through. I'm, you know, I, in that sense, I am a conservative, and I think this stuff, you know, we shouldn't be overly panicked. And we maybe need the, more time just to get more perspective on this. Damir, sorry. What's the what's the role do you think of 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 uh, writers and intellectuals? Could 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 Weimar have? And again, all caveats aside, we're not Weimar. We're mature democracy, etc. Could it have been saved with a, a handful of people pointing out exactly what was going on, or were these forces bigger than that? Again, I, that's ultimately where I'm coming from on this, and this is why most of my writing and analysis ends up sort of, I think. You know, uh, it's not poo-pooing the worried people. I'm plenty worried. I'm just worried in a very different register. And I, I, I think that that there's a there's a kind of complacency, a weird complacency that comes from feeling that you're on the right side of a fight rather than just part of a system that's rotting. Now, I'm not saying that my analysis gets us any closer to a solution, but I think it's a more correct analysis because it abstracts myself from 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 partly from what's the rot that's happening. Maybe that's vanity. It, I mean, it certainly is vanity. But it's, it's I, I think that like maybe that's, that should be the role of us as we analyze this, is, to, is to, to step even a little bit further behind outside of it, to say, let's, let's look at the bigger picture of how, how things are going wrong. While perhaps maybe, maybe, you know, the conservative optimists take is to say that, well, it's worked this long. There's clearly some kind of genius in the founding of this country and how the institutions were set up as, you know, ramshackle, uh, ramshackle-y as it seems sometimes, as out of step with the times as it seems, as sclerotic at times as it seems. It's worked this long. Maybe, maybe there's some level of optimism and trust we should get, some positive feeling we should have that we'll muddle through. Again, Bismarck, you know, this quote about God and, and fools and drunks in the United States. Um, Maybe maybe that's the the optimistic case, but I, I think that the 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 analyst role, as I see it in any case, is to try and as as much as possible take get as wide and big a picture as historically grounded a picture as possible. Not that history repeats itself. Not that we're Weimar. Not whether that we're late Rome in any one way necessarily in a one to one thing. But I wonder whether whether the the part of the problem with uh, the sort of simpler analyses is that we miss the bigger thing. Not saying that knowing the bigger thing helps us necessarily cope with it, but I kind of hope think that it might. I don't know. In other words, Does understanding oneself is completely irrelevant to the situation <laughs> is by far the best register with which to understand and write about. I I I I I, I see the merits of that. Shadi, how, how do you see? I'm I'm just temperamentally uh, at war with that. And I understand that's my temperament more than anything else. I'm just I'm just a little too passionate by nature, I think. I get upset too easily. Um, and I calm down. <laughs> but I, I guess I'm just thinking now about our role and what we do and how we understand that. Um, yeah, it is to understand things better. Um, and, but also to be engagé, as it were. <laughs> um, 
but I mean en cachet, not in a, I, I, I mean more in a Camus than a Sartre kind of way, um, <laughs> if you see what I mean. I mean, you, you probably do see what I mean, but I, but there's an, there's an element of, of insufficiency to the sort of rather dry analytic mode. Um, I think there is a really important role for that. And I think we probably have less of that than we need, and we have more uh, firing off um, than we need to. And I think, obviously, maybe social media has made all of this much, much worse, um, and that that has distorted our understanding of what's happening. Shadi, what? Yeah, I mean, what I'm struck by is when I talk to people who aren't on Twitter, sometimes they're not even aware of the debates that those of us who are online are having that it's almost like I'm entering into a parallel universe. Like for example, my mom is completely unaware of what wokeism is. And I've, she's asked me several times, like Shadi on your podcast, you talk about woke. I just don't really understand it because in her real life, it's not like a real thing to her. And similarly, I don't think she's aware of all the election fraud rep Republicans doing all this craziness and trying to resist. And she just, she, she, she knows that Trump has refused to concede, but she, do, it, it doesn't occur to her that Biden becoming president is, is not going to happen or that there's a real challenge or any real chance of it not going the way it's supposed to go. So I feel like if you're in a space that she's in, which I think a lot of Americans who are, you know, they're aware of politics, but they're not very engaged. And they just are operating in a very different context. Because when I go on Twitter and I see people like she wasn't aware that there were a bunch of people who thought that Trump was staging a coup. But if you were on Twitter the week after the election, half of the people I was following literally seemed to believe that we were on the verge of a fascist coup happening any moment. And I'm, I'm not being hyperbolic. That's actually the language they would use, fascist or coup or a combination thereof. So. And this kind of makes me think about, you know, Ross Douthat's argument in the decadent society that Americans like play acting. They like this performative back and forth. And even woke, I mean, as, as you, you know, we both think that wokeism, part of the reason it's so problematic is that it's about performative outrage and it's detached from real lives um, as they're actually lived. But you wonder sometimes that if people are spending all this time play acting, that also, um, you know, it pushes them away from actually doing really bad things in the real world. And maybe in some ways, that's like a somewhat optimistic way of looking at it. Can you imagine if all these crazy people would not crazy, but like um, some yeah, of them are crazy. crazy, but also people who suffer from legitimate mental illness. And this is not something to be joked about, like people who already have these um, these issues, the COVID exacerbates it. They're on their computer all the time and they're spending all their time freaking out. And, you know, maybe that's a way to get it out of one system. And that's better than the alternative of people actually expressing their anger in actual everyday politics. And this leads to this kind of endless back and forth of online performance between different factions. But a lot of it's just decadent. It's this endless repetition of exaggerated arguments. And none of it is actually based in the real world as we know it. I mean, that's a that's one maybe slightly more optimistic way of looking at it is that, um, yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, is Twitter, I mean, this is the endless debate. To what extent it are, is our online life a real life? Right. Uh, to what extent? But then, you, then I would take an example like climate change. 
where there is an, an online debate, as it were, and there are people dug in on and denying it and supporting it. It does have an effect on policy in the end. I think of my own family, you know, and uh, my mom has a very, I mean, she's English, so, but they're, they're saturated with American coverage. That's the weird thing. The whole world has been watching this in, in a sort of, in a way that I find, still find remarkable. Um, but mother's position is, um, well, he's obviously just a loony. <laughs> so yeah. Basically, and part of it's like, you know, my mom is pretty, that's basically right. That We just have this slightly deranged person in office who doesn't have really a good sense of reality. And now he's gone. Um, and don't make such big fuss about it. Um, and my brother's position is that too. But then I look at my brother who has, thanks to COVID and other things, uh, just does nothing but listen to podcasts from Joe Rogan to Jordan Peterson that is, that is, that is jumping down rabbit holes and becoming radicalized in a way that, I mean, he's probably going to hear this and be mad at me, but uh, in which I joked him about it. Like, what's happening to you? You used to be such a, even temperance kind of, you know, pretty sorted out dude. And now you're frothing at the mouth. You're a men's rights activist and all this stuff that, 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 that eventually comes out. Now, look, there are reasons for that. He has, he has arguments. It's not like he's, he, and some of the arguments are really worth listening to. Um, uh, but, uh, I, you know, I, I don't think it's entirely cosplay. You know, I don't think yeah. it's entirely. It has to affect you. It has to affect the way you think about the world and therefore the way you vote. Um, <clears throat> and it is a problem. I mean, the, 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 the inability to agree on a shared set of facts is a problem. You know, I don't mean to sound banal about it, but it kind of is, right? And we have an epidemic in this country, which is an obviously, talk about reality. And yet we do have large sections of the society just refusing to acknowledge this reality because it's not in their political or cultural worldview to accept it. Uh, but so I guess it raises the question, I mean, why do, why do people across the political spectrum, they seem to be um, lacking meaning in some kind of fundamental way where instead they want to replace that with this constant supply of anger, outrage, and they, there's a kind of thrill to finding enemies and searching them out. And I think there's a, there's a sort of a bigger foundational question. Why in this particular moment, and not just in the U.S., because we see the rise of right-wing populists throughout the world in very different cultures and societies, there is, there is something happening. Also among our peers on the left. Yeah, sure. I mean, so I, I don't, I mean, this summer I was like, what happened to you? What, it's, like, it's like the invasion of the body snatchers. Suddenly everybody is in this frantic notion that we, we have a crisis of, of white supremacy right now, everywhere <laughs> in the air. And it's, it, and, 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 and we have to confront it now. And why aren't you? And, and, and I mean, yeah, these are feverish emotions that are that are widespread at the same time i noticed everybody's trying to do meditation and yoga i mean that they're, they're attempting to find some balance and it's not working and maybe maybe they'd be better off finding a traditional religion uh well Shadi, you and i agree <laughs> on this uh i i mean i also believe actually that you can't understand what's happened in terms of our culture or in terms of things like the opioid crisis which is another massive reality that we sort of look away from half the time Without understanding what's happened to people's souls and minds, without the, the, the simple rituals and practices of a religion that, that do connect you with existential things, that, that keep you 
keep you with some perspective, understand your own mortality, and get some grip on who you are and, and, and some sort of sense of, of where you are. I mean, just by, if, you, if, you, if you don't have the stars above you, how on earth do you know what direction you're going in? Hmm. And, and most people are in very cloudy, dark situations now, and this stuff, this stuff replaces um, the, the needs, the, human, the fundamental human needs that religion used to help supply. And, and one of the big questions I have, and this is another podcast, Johnny, but is can liberal democracy survive the collapse of Christianity? I mean, if, if, for example, I mean, I think of wokeism, the conception of humans as simply parts of these ethnic groups or oppressive groups, you know, the, the one thing that used to be a solvent to that was the Christian understanding in, certain, in the West that we're all equal in the eyes of God. That we're all individual souls that are judged individually by, by God and by ourselves and that, and that we have inherent dignity, which means that we can't be simply put into these massive identity blocks, that we're much more complicated than that. But once you remove that, that premise, which of course liberalism uh, sprung out of in a way um, in the West, uh, and I think it tempered it in the West in a way that was very help, helpful, not without huge conflicts and dramas and all the rest of it, but I think without that, we are in trouble. Um, and I, for that reason, you know, I, I find the inability to go to church to be a big, big deal right now. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it, uh, these religious freedom cases. But look, I can't go. I can't risk going into a church. I just can't for mass. I mean, it, I have you probably hear the podcast. My lungs are not that great. I wouldn't I don't think I'd do very well if I got this bloody disease. But um, but I feel, you know, I feel the, the, the toll of, of not having that space that that moment of the week where I take stock and just get out of myself for a bit. Um, and I do think that's a, that's, that's a problem. And it probably has been more so because of COVID. We're all stuck at home. Nothing to do. Damir, you were, you were about, to, I could see in your face, you were about to say something. Yeah, no. Uh, so I, I'm very sympathetic to, uh, to the argument, but I, let me just throw it again at you more than, than uh, Shadi, Andrew, because I think you could, you could, maybe give a little bit perspective on this. Um, I mean, it's, it's telling also that wokeism is, is, is an American phenomenon that's leaked out into the rest of the West. And the, the, the counter um, to uh, at least part of your, both, I think, your shared analyses about the, the role of religion is, in fact, the, the deeply secularized uh, European continent, which, for whatever reason, hasn't yet been racked, though it is also experiencing this populist stuff, um, arguably Orbanism and the, the Polish, uh, you know, law and justice thing uh, is is more rooted in in traditionalism than uh, than Trump ever was, though. I guess the impulse is, again, this kind of rejection of of some kind of, you know, uh, feckless elites that, that, that drives it. But, but again, back to the question of that, you know, that the God-shaped hole you guys are talking about and, and liberal democracy existing within it. I don't know, Andrew, arguably, uh, you know, outside of the United States, which has always been much more religious than Europe, um, liberal democracy, well, again, under very specific circumstances of the Cold War, and the Cold War certainly provided a certain kind of framework for how to at least orient yourself, even on the continent. It 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 
it it it worked, and yet now now it's in 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 some kind of you know tumult. So I don't know. Does that does that complicate your your um, uh, well your, Ameri- your, your analysis at all? America has always had this religious spirit at its at its center. Um, it's it's you know uh, we should do a 1620 project in which uh, we talk about the influence of the first religious fanatics to come and found America, which which in some ways tells just as vivid a story um, as other historical starting dates. Um, well, good question. Um, I, I, I grew up in England, probably the most secular place you know, around. I mean, commonsensical, even when they created Christianity, it was barely that. Um, uh, I remember um, uh, an old Oxford professor of mine uh, was, uh, said he was, I'm just trying to remember this quote exactly. We can probably, he, he was talking about that he was a, um, a member of the Church of England because he needed to take a stand against religion. That's good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That was his. He was an atheist, but solidly Anglican because of that. It was. It was by far the least problematic, and there was always a way in which the English did that. I remember. I remember an old high Tory friend of mine, old guy, um, who I remember on Easter once who said, "Hallelujah, the Lord is risen. Have a drink." You know, and this sort of. Did he believe the Lord had actually risen? You know, I was. I. You know, I'm not like. I'm an Irish Catholic kid. You know, I'm not English in that way. I come from a very different uh, culture, and I, I really kind of disliked it because I think they sort of something's died inside in Europe. Uh, I, I, I. I hate to say that, but it, it feels empty. Uh, and then I'd also feel that Europe is much more indicative of what you know. Frank Fukuyama would call the or Nietzsche would call the last men. They really yeah. do feel like shadows of of human beings um, culturally, uh, and it, you know it may be it may be that Islam will save the world <laughs> some, <laughs> some some way. Uh, it doesn't look like Anglicanism is going to do it. Um, uh, but I go back to England. Um, and the whole place is as polarized as anything over here. That the anger, the frustration, the incompre- mutual incomprehension from two parts of society, which is it came to be symbolized over Brexit, which even now we're on the verge of some kind of resolution or not. And when you actually look at the resolution, it's about fishing and about subsidizing industries. Now these are not things that. In other contexts, people would feel this strongly about uh, bringing down governments, bringing down prime ministers, tearing the country apart. Uh, so there is something going on here. Um, and it is about, I think, some sort of sense of that the, the you're in control and not completely at the behest of forces that, 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 that somehow these bureaucrats seem to understand or these technocratic elites seem to be fine with, but you don't understand and it's hurting you in ways that's destroying your livelihood or changing your neighborhood in ways that you don't particularly like. So, so uh, I, don't think, uh, I, I don't think that Europe's escaped this, even though, it, even though it too isn't suffering really from a loss of religion in the 21st century in the way that America is. So I, I, mm. I don't know. Um, but one possibility is that our natural state is something like this where we as citizens don't agree on foundational questions, that our divides are existential. They're no longer about policy. And maybe 
we were able to delude ourselves as Americans, or at least during the, the end of the Cold War and and um, and thereafter in the '90s, that 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 wasn't that's not real in the sense that we're going back to our natural state of disagreeing on big questions because human beings disagree on their conception of the good life. They have different comprehensive doctrines. And um, we were spoiled for a little while where we thought we could transcend that. And now in all of these different societies, um, and, and to me, this was very striking because, you know, spending time in the Middle East during the Arab Spring, for example, I was struck by how like people wouldn't debate policy, taxes, healthcare. That wasn't what politics was about. It was about um, the meaning of the nation state, the role of religion in public life. And that's what divided people. And I used to think then that America was different because we talked about policy and like that's when healthcare was still the, um, the big issue under Obama. But now we're in some sense uh, almost in a way catching up to the way the Middle East was then. And I thought that, oh, Americans, like we're, we don't, we agree on the foundations and this goes to 1619 and all that. We're realizing more and more that foundational questions are up for grabs. Yeah. And maybe that's just something we're going to have to live with our fellow Americans on, that there's no way for one side to conclusively convince or defeat the other side on this. And we're going to have to sort of coexist with different foundational premises. Then the question becomes, how do we live together? Not, not, not in spite of that, but like taking into account that difference is real and it's lasting. So I think that's sort of like increasingly how I'm looking at these questions. We can't undo this kind of um, um, lack of consensus. So when people say, let's just, we have to find a way to build back consensus. We have to find a way to be unified again. We're not gonna be unified again. Yeah, but liberalism was supposed to solve that, right? <laughs> that was the problem. That's why liberalism created. Now, when liberalism is itself part of that process, you know, you really do come back to the sort of Straussian critique of liberal democracy that, that, that really it, it's got a very empty center and it's a very shallow form and that maybe it was sustained by effortless prosperity and bullshit. Uh, but the notion, for example, that who comes in and out of your country, who is an American, non-American, is not something that we should debate politically, which was really the consensus for yeah. a long time. We don't debate immigration levels. We don't, even though the country is being bloody transformed by it, we're not talking about that. Um, and to some extent, this was an insistence by a lot of people that, hold on a minute, yeah, we do want to talk about that. It's pissing us off or unnerving us, and we want something to change. Um, uh, so that, maybe this the, is, you know, this is That's the hollow elites, though, right? I mean, that specifically is that. They're, they're beholden to that ideology, mm -hmm. that, that kind of thing, that it doesn't exist, mm -hmm. that the nation state doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And, and, and it's, it's, it's ideological there. I mean, in that sense, I mean... I've been a, shocked, to be honest. I'm really shocked by my peers. I had yeah. no idea they didn't really believe in the nation state. <laughs> I, I had no idea they didn't really believe in liberal individualism, that they were basically racial uh, identitarians. And when they looked at me, the most important thing is that I have um, white and male and cis. But are they, or is it something, <laughs> is, it, is it a bit of cowardice as well, that they don't actually feel that strongly, but this is where the wind is blowing and it's too hard to resist, especially if you're a white male, to kind of um, to fight against wokeism is risky. I can get away with a lot because I'm brown and Muslim and I'm one of the disadvantaged groups in the hierarchy. Great. But if you're a white person, you feel like you better get with the program. Yeah. Right. 
Unless you're like me and you're just... But that takes, no but fucking way I'm going to have to agree to this bullshit. But uh, that takes some <laughs> conviction in it. And, it and, does, yes. And and in, 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 in my case, probably an undeserved, but, but because I don't... You know, I, I can always find my readers. I can always earn a living. Uh, I've had to earn a living outside of these structures because otherwise I wouldn't have one. Um, uh, well, we've been talking for a very long time about so many things and I think we got onto... Some really interesting territory that maybe we should explore another time, especially religion and politics, yeah. which I know you and I both care deeply about. I think we we have some differences uh, about that, and and also about um, maybe Shadi, you and I. Uh, I don't know, Damir, what your religious uh, status is, or uh, it's I, one of the I, things I'm I don't ask. De degenerate people. European. In that oh, you're sense, a dead person. <laughs> <laughs> your soul has withered and died, gone away. That's um, right. You're a shadow. I, <laughs> Uh, a but I, but one thing I think we don't talk about enough, Shadi, which maybe we, we, we should, is what it is like for actual people. I hate this this terminology because it just makes me vomit. But people of faith, it's, uh, how we navigate um, modernity in in this way, um, and how we. I mean, I'm also really shocked at how many white Catholics voted for Trump. I, 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 it's it's a it's a very difficult thing for me to process. I'm talking how many Muslims voted for Trump, well, yeah. and and the increase seems to be quite significant. I mean, some numbers are coming out as many as 35 percent mm -hmm. of American mm -hmm. Muslims voted for Trump. Or last time around, it was around 10 to 15 percent. Still a minority, but that's a a pretty big increase. And you have to ask yourself: um, four years of Trump, Muslims were like, "Hmm, we want more of this." Yes, <laughs> fuck yeah. <laughs> Um, also true of, I mean, well, we don't have, I mean, we have, we only have data now of this it, it, awful rubric called LGBTQ. I, I don't know what the hell that means. I mean, 20% of under 30s identify as that. Well, that can't mean they're all lesbians. Oh, it's really, it's that high now? It's gotten that high, yeah. yeah. It's, 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 it just means not, it just means cool at this point. <laughs> so 22% of cool people, um, it, it you know, but nonetheless, even amongst that broad and meaningless category, there's been an increase in support for Trump um, uh, since 2016 amongst the, the whatever they are. Um, so yeah, it's worth thinking about. Um, I find that less. I found that much easier to explain, to be honest, because there are many diverse ideas in among gays and lesbians, and, and they're not Catholics. They're not. They're not supposed to be committed to the dignity of human beings. Mm. Um, they're not supposed to be committed to the virtues of poverty or selflessness and all the things that Trump despises and opposes. It, that 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 it's it's and but that's also what's interesting about religion. I mean, you know, the evangelical embrace of this guy is truly. I mean, one of the things that I think one just has to begin to absorb more deeply uh, over time. Because they have embraced the antithesis of Christianity. I mean, virtually someone who who represents the very dynamic opposite of Christianity as their savior. Now, that is an extraordinary phenomenon. Um, I mean, someone who would literally heckle the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> uh, and and yet that's, that's happened. Um, and I think that also tells you that what I actually believe, which is that there's no place where Christianity is, is more dead than among even political evangelicals. It's just, they think that's what it is. Sure isn't. Anyway, we've had a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. 
and thank you for having me on your podcast. Uh, and vice versa. Yeah. Um, this is fun. Yeah. Thanks so much for having us. Oh yeah. It's you know I it's this may be a good era for for potting, but you know because it, 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 we are able to actually also humanize this a little bit. I mean, one thing that yeah. when I talk about my peers, I, what what shocks me is how they express themselves on social media and 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 in some ways uh, just how much hate there is for mm. an individual like me or apparent hate. Maybe it's performative hate. I don't know. Um, uh, and 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 some of these notions, like the, the not believing in the nation state, not even believing in a distinction between a citizen or a non-citizen, these are really kind of amazing things to me that, that, that I never really realized were that deep. But they probably wouldn't hate you if they met you in person, right? I hope not. I mean, I, I think I'm a relatively <laughs> personable. I mean, you know, I think one of the great things about the podcast is that people who have these weird ideas about who you are, this fucking maniac in a Ku Klux Klan robe, uh, running around believing in the inferiority of various racial groups, which is fucking ridiculous. I don't believe any of that. <laughs> Never believed any of that. Um, and it was, it's been anyway. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Thank, thank you, Demir, you. all thank the way Andrew. from Croatia, and, and best wishes uh, for your dad. Um, thank you. Thank and, you very much. And just a reminder that um, Demir and Shadi uh, do have a podcast, The Wisdom of Crowds. Um, that's what it's called. You can find it. Also, the, the weekly dish is on Substack. You can subscribe. Please do. It's, it's, it's on a roll, and we'd love more of you to be part of it. Um, thank you.